Hey everyone, it's Rachel with a quick announcement before we get to your podcast episode today. Our 2023 Local Motive Tour is kicking off on September 14th, and I really don't want you guys to miss it. Here's a quote from a locomotive attendee, Richard. He says, I did the locomotive tour a couple years ago and found I was using the ideas from all of the stops when I would have conversations about our community. Strong Towns does a good job putting these together and they involve people who are dedicated and skilled and who live in all parts of the country. Thanks Richard for that feedback. Hopefully that's a little extra to convince you if you're on the fence about joining us. These events take place every Thursday at 12 p.m. Central from September 14th through November 2nd. You'll get an hour of educational workshop featuring a Strong Town speaker plus a guest speaker. And of course, afterwards, you'll get access to the recording and a bunch of resources. Plus, you can join us for our new feature this year, the after party on Fridays with my colleague Norm, where you can keep chatting about the topic discussed at that week's session. So you definitely want to get your ticket now because the first session, which is called, is this development worthwhile? Let's do the math is going to feature Chuck and Joe Minicosi of urban three. And I can already tell you that it is currently our most popular stop from the number of people that have signed up. So I'm thinking others probably don't want to miss out on that one either. A couple of other highlights. We've got a session called four freeway fighting tactics featuring two advocates, Allie Smither and Susan Graham. They've been fighting against the I-45 project in Houston, and Chuck Marone will join them. Another session is called The Small Steps That Can Make a Big Impact on Your Transit System, and it features transit expert Jerome Horn, plus our staff writer and, I believe, self-described transit nerd, Asha Mielasko. And it's not all about, you know, math and transportation and these more hard subjects. We've also got a session, probably one of the ones I'm most excited about, which is called How to Host a Neighborhood Walk. This is going to be led by my colleague, John, and a bright young Strong Towns leader, Jacob, who's been running these really powerful community walks to get to know neighbors and understand issues in his city. So that's probably enough of me blabbing. Important point is get your ticket now at strongtowns.org slash local motive. All right, let's get to your podcast episode. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Bottom Up Revolution. I'm your host, Tiffany Owens-Reed. Today, I'm joined by Gary Adi. He is a longtime resident of Temecula Valley, California. After a long career in public education as a teacher and administrator, he retired in 2016. A lifelong biker, he founded Bike Temecula Valley in 2020, a nonprofit that advocates for more active transit in his city. Along with his duties as president of BTV, Gary is also a substitute administrator for the Temecula Valley Unified School District, the coordinator of the Murrieta Creek Regional Trail for Cities Planning Team. He also sits on the City of Temecula Community Service services commission and continues to lead rides and educate the community about active transportation. Gary, welcome to the show. I'm glad you could be here today. Thank you, Tiffany. Great to be here. 
To get things started, I would love it if you could tell our listeners and tell me a little bit more about your background, your family, um, and how you came to live in Temecula. Do you all call it Temecula or do you call it Temecula Valley or do you call it the Temecula Valley? What's the proper well, way? Well, the, the city is Temecula that we live in, and that's the city we've lived in the whole time we're here. Um, but the general area is oftentimes referred to as the Temecula Valley. So that would be our region of Southwest Riverside County in Southern California. But I'm not committing any faux pas, but just referring to it as Temecula. No, absolutely. That would be perfectly fine. Okay, great. Yeah, so so tell, tell us a little bit about yourself, about your background, your family, and, and how you came to live in your city. Sure. Um, I'm, I'm the son of a, a steel worker um, who worked at Kaiser Steel in Fontana, California. His family moved from Western Pennsylvania, which is big time steel country. Um, and I, I grew up in, in California. I'm a native Californian. I, I have never left Southern California. My wife and I made one attempt to move up closer to the central coast in Ventura. But for job purposes, we, we ended up moving back down to Southern California. So uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, marry my high school sweetheart, who also is an educator. And we raised our three daughters right here in Temecula. And it seems we are now a family of educators because all three of them are teachers. Uh, we have a first grade teacher, a fifth grade teacher, and a high school med biology teacher. Wow. So, in saying that, none of my daughters ever wanted to be what mom and dad were when they were growing up. They never would have admitted isn't that, that. Isn't that how it goes? <laughs> I, I guess, but um, they're all they all have wonderful um, wonderful careers and um, they're building their families, and um, we're we're just so excited about that. We have two grandchildren here in Temecula. Um, who attend our Temecula schools, and, and my wife and I um, really enjoy watching them and, and going to their activities. So do your children live close to you? Is everyone so close to home? Yeah, we're, we are all in Southern California. Two of them are in the San Diego area, North Park and, and Del Mar, and then I have my daughter with our two grandchildren lives here in Temecula. So I'm curious, you were a teacher for a long time. Were, what, was there like a favorite class or a favorite subject that you got to teach? Do you have a favorite teaching memory? Uh, absolutely. So I think, um, Tiffany, when we first met, I, I talked to you a little bit about my psychology background. My, my undergraduate work was in behavioral science. So all of my education and, and background had been in psychology. I was mostly an administrator through through my career, but I was fortunate enough to make the choice to go back into the classroom towards the end of my career to, to spend a little more time with my family and, and get focused back on one of my passions, and it was teaching psychology. So I taught um, high-level psychology courses to high school students and also worked as a sports psychology adjunct professor um, teaching sports psychology Oh, cool. at, a, at a small college. Yes. So um, one thing that I find really interesting about your story, because I know we got to chat 
before actually recording. Um, and I've only been hosting this podcast for a couple of weeks now. And so far, most of the people that I've interviewed have been closer to my age, more on the younger side. And so I'm really excited about the perspective that you'll get to bring as someone who's lived in a city for a really long time um, and just gotten more experience. So I have moved a lot. I grew up very transient, lived all over the country. Um, and so I don't really have the experience of having roots in a city for a long period of time. I'm just curious on your perspective on that, because it's something that I admire for people who who have made that kind of commitment. What would you say is the value of establishing roots or of committing to one place? I would hope that people who commit to one place, you know, have do it because their their quality of life is great. And and I think ever since we, you know, we we had had a strong desire to move away from where we were living, which was um, closer to the San Gabriel Valley. And it was at the time we moved was very smoggy and um, busy. It would take us, you know, a good deal of time to try to get anywhere where we lived. Um, so we were looking for a smaller place, a place um, where um, life was a little simpler. And um, that's why our, our move to Temecula kind of stuck, because even though when we moved here, it was a brand new city, it was became a city in 1989. And that's the year we moved here. So we've oh, been wow. able to yeah, we've been able to be a part of this community and build this community um, as community members and as leadership um, in that in that um, endeavor. But it it's still, even though now it's a city of over a hundred thousand, uh, we still feel like it has a small town feel, and and it just expanded our our social group. Uh, in it's you know in, in that regard. There's there's more chances for happiness and 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 social endeavors and uh, we just just feel so connected to the community. So I I guess yeah that roots feeling like your home um, are things that ultimately if it makes you happy that's great. And some folks are better off moving around, you know, and and it it just it just seemed to really work for us and it was great for our situation. My husband and I were talking about this recently, just how, um, especially after COVID, people are free to move more places than I think we have been in a long time because of remote work and things like that. One of the the ideas we were sort of kind of wrestling with was how um, I think for our generation, there aren't really, we don't have strong ties. That's going to sound like I'm being really judgmental. I'm sure plenty of people in my age range have plenty of strong ties. But what I mean is the constraints that would normally shape where you lived in the past, whether it was for a particular job or um, way back in the day, you were, you were bound to a place by the land, right? Or you're bound by family or you were like, there were things that sort of like constrained where you could live and like places you would, you would consider like settling down for a bit. Um, And I think it's interesting now because on one hand we have the freedom to kind of go so many places, but on the other hand, we don't have, um, it's harder to cultivate a sense of those ties or to figure out, how to even think about being committed to a place when it seems like there's so many options to go somewhere that could be better. Yeah, I think I can definitely relate to that. You know, we call it the hedonic treadmill. So we get on that treadmill thinking that, you know, you, you're, you're looking for that 
place that is idyllic and perfect and better. And then you get there and you jump on and you want more. So um, I, I again think that it, it can be a, a contributor to some of the built environment issues we have today and the weaker towns that we see because people are transient. They come through and move away and don't have those connections. Um, you know, just the, the town is not in their heart. And so they're, they're looking for that other place. But I think, again, the built environment itself contributes to that because many of the places we are are just out on a freeway or in a, you know, in a sprawl area that you don't feel connected to it. So I think um, one of the, one of the things I think you need to look at is I always, I always kind of refer back to the blue zones. And when you look at those blue zones, some of the factors, the nine, the nine factors of a longer and, and happier life, are the fact that most of those people in the blue zones have been there for generations and they have a buy into their community, to their social group. And um, so much of their life, you know, just even even eating dinner is about socializing and um, being with family and, and close friends. So, you know, I think that when you're, when you're making that final decision and like, like I said, my wife and I had, spent maybe the first, you know, 10 to 13, 14 years of our, of our um, officially married life looking for that place. And, you know, we spent some time thinking about where that place was. And, and so um, we, we were fortunate to find a place that, you know, was about community, was about social connections and, you um, you know, that, that I think has helped us have a, you know, deal with maybe the, the problems of life and, and, you know, put money in the bank for your happiness when you, <laughs> when you have those connections. What, so, can you explain the uh, blue zone? What is that? Okay. So blue zones is a, um, I don't have the name in front of me of the guy who developed it. He was a national geographic photographer and he had noticed in his travels around the Butner. it's Butner is his last name, but he had noticed that there were places in the world where people were living longer and seemed happier. So he actually did a scientific study to determine where, where were these happiest places and where were these places that had the most longevity. And so they tied diet, social activity, um, even re, you know religious beliefs, um, activity, all of those things into what makes a happier and longer lifestyle. And so um, you can access information on the Blue Zones. You know, they have a magazine, they have many publications, and they also have a foundation that goes out and helps towns become more uh, healthier and happier and improves their quality of life. So that's, yeah. that's basically Blue Zones. Okay, that's helpful. Yeah, I, I appreciate the... Um it feels like there's sort of two sides to this to way of thinking about of cultivating roots on one hand it is like a personal decision to just understand the value of being connected to a community but on the other hand there is a role that cities can play and to think about like design and think about quality of life and think about uh, the pattern of life that that we're making possible 
by, you know, by how we make these different design decisions. It seems like there's both of those are really important. So we like to bike. We get to talk about biking uh, in our, in this podcast. But before we do that, I want to ask you a question that I ask um, everybody. Um, Well, I'd love to know a little bit more about your city. Um, If you can just tell us a little bit more about the history um, about what you love, what you feel like are some of the challenges. And then um, I'd really love to know just kind of your story. Like, how did you become like what I call city aware, like aware of the built environment, aware of um, issues like safety or transit and things like that? Um, if there was like, a particular story or moment, yeah, we'd love to hear that. Great. Thanks. Thanks for asking that question, Tiffany. You know, I think we... We came to uh, an area here in Temecula, and as we're here, we learn more about its long-term history. Um, we're a part of its short-term history because it became a city in 1989. But before that, um, if you go back thousands and thousands of years, the original people were the Pechanga Band of Luiseno Indians who lived in a virtual paradise where the um, tributaries to the Santa Margarita came together and formed a valley amongst these rolling hills and California chaparral. And we still see some of that as you look to the outskirts and in, in open spaces within our cities. Um, but over time, um, this became a cherished Spanish um, ranchos area and um, cattle ranching area. And at one point, the Butterfield stage line ran through uh, Temecula on its way from, I believe, Santa Fe, New Mexico, all the way to um, Los Angeles and maybe even further up to um, San Francisco at the time. Then we started um, seeing the development down here and we actually have a freeway that divides our town. And we were considered in the 1990s as a um, exemplary planned city when we were dealing with, you know, car centric ideas of what a what a city should look like. So it was um, quite a bit of sprawl, meaning that we have individual wonderful neighborhoods that are isolated. So you have these little isolated spots, like, for example, my um my daughter and grandchildren live on a wonderful cul-de-sac um, where the kids all play out in the cul-de-sac and they come together and the adults stand around and socialize. So that kind of is a throwback to, you know, some of those towns that I, I mentioned the blue zones before, but most of those zones are where people live in, in towns where there aren't any cars that you just basically walk to the center and, and meet, meet your, um, your fellow citizens. So, um, but the problem with this is um, we're, we're inaccessible um, to our services, to our schools, to our place of worship, to, um, you know, um, things you need to get done. So you got to get in the car. Even when you're maybe just a block or two away from services, the intersections and strodes are so dangerous to cross that um, you, you're, you're, you're better off, you're safer by jumping in your car to get there. Uh, so um, I, I first began my awareness. Um, I, I got a job at a, a school um, as the principal on the north side of our town. And, and we have a creek that runs through called the, 
the Santa Gertrudis Creek. And so the school was about a block from the creek. And in 1991, the county flood control um, did some work on that creek and they added a recreational trail, a class one trail along the side of the creek. And it was about a little over a four mile trail at the time. And it really led to nowhere. It just went along the creek. But it was a great place for, for my staff and I to throw on our running shoes and go for an after work run. Um, you know, you could run four to six miles without worrying about a car along a greenway. And it was really nice. And so in my head, I was thinking, oh, this is going to be fantastic. This town is going to have trails everywhere. And they even at, at that time mentioned that this would be a segment of a loop trail, a 17 mile loop trail that would go around the entire town. But the reality of it was, um, as we got busy with raising our children and our careers that um, we didn't get involved and didn't say anything about it, but the next extension to that trail was well over 25 years later. So, um, which we just had a grand opening here last year to wow. the Santa Gertrudis Creek undercrossing that goes actually under our freeway and then connects to our old town. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm regretful that I didn't say anything at the time. I did say a little bit, um, but about just transit in general that, you know, why don't we have public transit in our, in our town? Why aren't we thinking about it? But nothing on active transportation. So my turning point was in um, when, as I approached retirement, I, um, I started a mountain bike team at our, at our, at the high school that I worked at. And so in um, 2011, we had the first mountain bike team in our school district and, as we were riding around town with these young young cyclists, um, we were kind of you know scared to death to take them out because of how dangerous it was dangerous it was on our roads. So I always had this dream of you know how can we have a trail that would take us to our you know our mountain bike trails you know which we do have some wonderful trails that are outside the city but um, do that in a safe manner without having to put our bikes on the back of our car to get out there. Um, so that's when I started really becoming aware. And I became um, a board member of the Temecula, Temecula Valley Mountain Bike Association as their trails chairperson and started to learn a little bit about 501c3s and how bike advocacies group, advocacy groups worked. And then I, um, through the Sierra Club, I became the coordinator of the Murrieta Creek Regional Trail. So I work with four municipalities that run along that trail. It's about a, a 17 to 20 mile um, trail that's planned from Temecula all the way to Lake Elsinore. Um, and so within those two experiences, I, I realized, you know, that both of those situations did not have great um, power, did not have great political power, did not have great um, uh, financial power. Um, so what I was looking at were other areas uh, 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 that surrounded Temecula, San Diego County, um, Riverside, San Bernardino area, Los Angeles County, Orange County. They all had some pretty strong bike advocacy groups or coalitions 
that we're building, helping build some infrastructure in those areas and doing things for cyclists. So that's where the thought was, I'm going to have to break, break out and start our own coalition and, and a more diverse coalition with um, accepting all forms of cycling and, um, and active transportation to um, advocate you know, for a better infrastructure and safer cycling and safer walking in our area. I'm really excited to talk to you more about what you all do as a coalition, but I want to ask a fun question first. Can you tell me about just how you discovered the joy of, of biking? Oh yeah. Um, so, well, I think we, most of us can go back to our childhood for that. Um, and I, I always tell a story about my older cousin. I didn't have any older brothers. I had one older sister, but my older cousin gave me his um, 10-speed Varsity Schwinn um, bike, a hand-me-down. Uh, I think maybe only two or three gears worked on it, but um, I would ride that all over the San Gabriel, well, at the time, the Pomona, Ontario area of Southern California on some really rough strodes. Um, I don't believe I even wore a helmet, and, and I, I don't think um, my parents liked the fact that I had some um, independence because that's how they were. They grew up. Um, but at the same time, um, I didn't think they were aware of the dangers of doing that, but I just really loved it. Always loved, um, endurance sports. Um, you know, I would ride, ride, I did get a new bike and I was able to ride it to school when I was in, um, junior high age, um, riding on the busiest streets of Ontario <laughs> to get to and from school. But, as I got older, then I um, went away from the more traditional sports that I played in high school and college and developed a real interest in endurance sports and um, came into mountain biking right around the time it was invented and then um, developed a love for triathlons and um, then started to learn about road cycling and um the benefits of it and just the joy of being on your bike and feeling like a kid. Mm -hmm. So um, I think there's a, there's a, a, a freedom that, you know, getting out of your car and getting on your bike um, gives you that, that it's a youthful feeling. It, it yeah. brings you back to that childhood. Yeah. I love that. Um, I've never thought of it that way. Um, but I actually, I have, I started journaling when I was about 14, maybe. And once in a while, I'll find my journal from when I was a teenager. And it, I, I didn't know this, but we had, so my family actually lived in California at one point. We lived in Sacramento. And um, I remember flipping to this entry in my diary from my very, you know, exciting teen years and discovering that I would regularly do errands on my bike for my mom, which I apparently completely forgot. So it's fun to have it. I don't know. I just think that's fun to think about kind of the youthfulness connection and just the freedom associated with that. But then of course I was like, Oh, this must be where I got my biking love from uh, these experiences. I didn't even remember I had biking around yeah. Sacramento. <laughs> just telling me that story, the endorphins are going crazy right now. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Mine are. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think too, there's something about um, the fact that your body is actually powering you, which is not the case in a right. car, right? Like you're exactly. actually the source of power for your movement. And there's just something so thrilling about that. I don't know if I have the right 
words to really describe it, but it's like I could do the same commute every single day. I, I used to be able to bike in Waco. Um, I can't now because we're too far from everything, but um, and it, it never got old. Like the same, the same route to my co-working space and the same route home. I knew exactly what to expect, but for whatever reason, it always felt like an adventure every time. I think the biggest thing about being on a bike or walking as opposed to being in a car, you're, you're moving slower and you are, you notice things you would never notice in a car. Um, and I actually, one of the un- unfortunate things I notice more of is what people in cars are doing while I'm riding my bike and sharing the road with them. So it, it, it gets your adrenaline going in that, in that direction too, in terms of your fear. But, um, no, I think you're right. I mean, any, any, um, endurance sport is, you know, gives you that rush and to, to say that you would substitute a car trip for a bike trip or a walking trip, um, just increases your quality of life in, in multiple ways. Well, too, one thing that always dawns on me that's kind of crazy about cars is the fact that our speedometer shows that, that your car technically has the capacity to go 140, 160 miles an hour. So it's almost like the entire time in a car, your your perception of space and movement is shaped by the potential to constantly be able to go faster. But usually you can't, right? Either because of other cars, speed limits, stop signs, red lights. So you kind of exist in a state of perpetual frustration where you're you're sort of teased that you could technically go 140 miles an hour, but actually not really. So you're kind of always in this place of like, man, I have the potential to go faster, to get there faster, to get there first. But I, but everything is sort of working against you. Whereas when I, when, I, when you're on a bike. Your, your perception of your constraints is basically like your body, <laughs> like how, and, and it's not nearly as frustrating because you're like, I would love to be able to go faster, but, but the constraints are just so built in in this way less frustrating way. There's nothing you can do to manipulate your own physical capacity, right? You have to sort of just accept it. Whereas in a car, you always have the possibility that maybe if no one else was in your way, you could maybe go a little bit faster. You know what I mean? <laughs> like why do we have speedometers well, at 140 miles? Like, why do you have it there? No one can actually drive at 140 well, miles an hour. <laughs> well, you do see you do see some cars on the road that that can and and I've seen people doing it. Um, but yeah, I, I think that generally the the um, the comparison, you know, the differences between those two activities is good. But now let's look at the similarities. And I think that, you know, even walking and crossing an intersection on a strode um, or walking alongside a strode that just with the noise and the exhaust fumes um, and the difference of, so let's put you back in your car and now you're out on Route 66 in the middle of the Arizona desert and maybe you can't go 140, but you could probably hit 100 and you don't have the constraints Um now you put that same car in the middle of a city and you're limited to the speed limits and the traffic and the stoplights and the stop signs. Now, there are way more stresses when you're driving a car, especially if you're commuting. 
um, on busy freeways or in busy cities. But imagine yourself on the bike and on um, riding along a greenway with no stoplights, no um, autos, no vehicles in the area other other than other bicycles or mobility devices, and you can move along as smooth as you want. And and this is what we're you know this is the dream of what the built environment should be. It should be about stress free active transportation, you know, the ability to go out, whether I'm riding my, my bicycle for fun or for an errand, um, I should be able to go out and do that stress-free. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about um, the nonprofit that you started. So you started Temecula Valley Bicycle Coalition in 2020. Can you tell me a little bit about kind of um, how you all got organized and, and what are your goals as an organization? Thanks for asking that, Tiffany. I think that our, you know, we, we got together. I kind of led up to that by saying, okay, it was my idea, right? So, I, and, and I, don't, I don't ever take credit with the folks that have come with me, but they always point back to me and say, hey, it was your idea. <laughs> so um, we were all thinking, you know, we all had like thinking at the time. Um, and I, we had our very first meeting um, during the pandemic in 2020, and it was a one of our local bike shop owners, um, one of their mechanics from the bike shop, and my dear friend who um, had a um, about 20 years ago had a massive heart attack, um, and he survived it. Had to be revived twice, but he survived it, and in in going through that, um, he's also had some other injuries to his body. So he was a very active man before it happened, but um, he's kind of limited to what he can do now because he had um, an ankle fusion, I think a knee replacement, a hip replacement. And really the only activity he can do is, is ride a bike. So he's very interested in riding bikes and he actually is an e-bike rider. He used to be, you know, a reg- he used to have a road bike and everything, but now he rides e-bikes in his, you know, in his 60s. So um, he ha- definitely is, is um, like-minded with me in, in making this go. And then the last person we included was our um, a city council member who is currently our mayor. Um, and um, he's been probably in Temecula the guy that has been the advocate for, for cycling. He used to ride his kids to school. This was before he became a council member, but he would ride his bike everywhere. He would cycle his kids to school. He would cycle to the store, cycle to meetings. Um, and he was a great role model. And um, he's all about, um, you know, so we do have a little in there with our mayor right now. Um, which makes it easier for us. But again, like I said, I, I think that um, the way I see it is you, you have to have a coalition of people who can show that they're powerful to those who are in power. And the way I think of doing that, and that's why we became a 501c3, was I think money breeds, um, money breeds human um, help. So, you know, we, we, um, you need to raise money 
to build our coalition to more people and a more diverse um, group of people. But, you know, I think it was a strong desire for all of us to get this fixed before it got too bad. And, you know, basically we want to all be able to go out and ride our bikes, but we want to do it for the common good too. We want to make our community, our community sustainable. We want to be a model for the world to say that, Hey, you don't need to get in your car every time you need to go somewhere. Um, you can do it by walking or riding your bike. Um, and it can cut down on our car trips. So in, in order to do that, we have to create a, we have to build a safe environment for those people who want to do that, to be able to go out and do it. So can you tell me a little bit about some of the specific um, like initiatives or um, goals sure. that you all are pursuing? Sure. I think, you know, I, I think I'll focus on, um, well, we look at our vision and our vision is to create safe infrastructure um, for cycling and, and, and pedestrians in our community. Um, and so that's difficult when you're not a municipality and you're you're just a 501c3 because you have to work with those organizations to get these things built. Um, but in doing so, um, we um, kind of took the tact of basically infiltrating our local governments, our city city government, our um, school board. I don't like to use that word because I think it's it's it infiltrating is is kind of like I've I've seen some actually our community has had some issues with national agendas trying to come in and infiltrate to I, get I, that national. It makes me passed. it makes me think of uh, ninja costumes for some reason. You know, yeah. <laughs> like you guys coming down from yeah. the ceiling, kind of dramatic, right? Right, right. and a mission like, mission like impossible. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So. You know, we we felt like being a part of it, it would be um, a way to gain some gain some um, say in what's going on. Let's see. We have three of our board, four of our board members are also on commissions in the city. Um, our mayor is actually a, a non-active member of our of our um of our bike coalition um, has more things to focus on right now. Um, and so um, we've developed this working relationship with city staff. And one of our big wins, I believe, was um, taking um, our city uh, earned a bronze level from American um I always have a hard time saying the name of this association, but it's the um, American Bicyclist um, Association. I'm going with that, but they okay. have a uh, <laughs> they have a um, program where they rate um, communities on um, bronze, silver, gold, diamond, platinum. They have several lever- levels. Cities like um, Austin, um, Fort Collins, Boulder, uh, Davis, California, they're all high level winners of that, but they have a criteria that you have to meet in their application that, you know, lets them know if you are a cycle friendly community. And so what we did was our, 
our city has a, a program called um, Quality of Life Master Plan, uh, which they involve several city um, figures, um, a diverse group of, of city uh, opinions on how to improve the quality of life in our community. And that generally, after that collaborative effort is done, that becomes our city plan for the next 20 years. Um, so we, we were um, able to um, represent active transportation on that planning team. And we were able to get infused into that general plan the criteria from the American Bicyclist Association um, on their their um, bicycle-friendly communities. So now it's a part of our general plan where the city wants to follow that criteria because it's in the plan. So that means money will go toward um, building infrastructure, will go towards programs, education, and so forth to become a higher level um, bicycle-friendly community. So that's a huge win for us. And also stemming from that, one of the criteria was to have a um, active transportation advocacy um, uh, citizens advisory group to work with city staff. And we, we did develop that. We had our first meeting a couple months ago. And now uh, coming up in September, we have a planning meeting to get the next meeting going. And it's a two-way operation where community members give input and the city then educates back on what they are doing in terms of becoming a more um, active transportation friendly community. Um, so I think it's a great thing and, and those things can, are always just so positive. But it's, the, it's all around that, you know, what you asked me, what are, you know, kind of the things that we're doing. It's that uh, working together with um, those that are, the, that are in governance, those that are in positions of power, um, to um, improve our built environment. What would you say have been some of your biggest challenges? Well, um, I think there are many challenges. And like I said, um, I do think that um, we didn't have that challenge of um, breaking through into the government because I think we were set up in a way of our original group that we had already had relationships with local government. We need to um, break down the paradigm of car-centric, just like many um, other advocates have. Um, we're in a car-centric America. We're in a car-centric California out here. And um, Temecula is, which really was a bedroom community. People were commuting to LA, Orange County, San Diego, Riverside, San Bernardino. Um, we started off as a community that had 70% of our population was commuting to other places to work. Now, we've become less of that now, but we are just really set up to be um, car-centric or car-brained, um, and we have to break through that paradigm. Uh, I think the challenge there is to to let people know that we're not opposed to cars. I mean, I'm going to talk a little bit, uh, you know, I think down the road here about the people who we have in our coalition right now are generally like me. We're older um, white folks who, um, you know, grew up in California in the 1960s and 70s, and we loved cars, and we still do love the the tradition of cars, and and there is a place for cars. Um, 
but um, we're not out. We're not a radical group that is out to get rid of cars or, or you know, tell you you can't drive your car anywhere. We want to make um, driving in a car much pleasurable and in a more in a less um, impactful um, situation for all of us. So it's it's getting through that car brain that everything we build has to be for cars and moving to we should be building these spaces for people. Um, and, and so one of the things I asked our public works is to when they did have projects that involve circulation, they talk so proudly about circulation, but it's only about circulating cars. And if they would just include um, cycling and walking and other forms of active transportation in that, in that um, circulation. Um, one of our other challenges is just what I do. I just talked about is we would like to become more diverse. So in order to make our advocacy and our coalition grow, um, we really need to have young, enthusiastic um, folks get involved in it and um, not, you know, I think if, if I had a mentor um, like some of our board members come to me when I was, you know, back in my 30s and 40s and thinking about this a little bit while I was riding my bike, um, you know, if they had come to me, I would have definitely got involved in some level. I would have made it a part of my life. And so I'm hoping that some of those folks will jump in with us. Um, I think a lot of people will look at that and say, hey, someone else is taking care of it. I, I, that's good. I feel comfortable because Bike Temecula Valley is doing this. So we have to become more diverse. Our community is becoming more diverse. And I think that um, that is in our goals. I mean, it's in our guiding principles that we are a diverse group of cyclists. And I, and I think that, um, you know, that's a big challenge for us is to is to find a way to get folks that are right in the middle of their um, building their careers and families and busy as could be um, to get involved with us because I know they're interested. And I know that as we you know look at millennials, they love this kind of thing with the built environment in general. And so hoping to get more of that going on. Yeah, I think as um, someone who kind of fits a few of those criteria, living here in Waco, and I for for probably the last year, um, definitely last year, I was um, really trying to figure out how to be involved in conversations around transit, whether that was public transportation, improving bikeability, or just improving pedestrian infrastructure and making some of our roads safer. And I think one of the things that um, was really difficult was that it wasn't really clear how to be involved. And it didn't seem like it just seemed very confusing. Like it wasn't clear who to talk to. It wasn't clear what the levers of change were. Like how to, I couldn't seem to figure out like how does change actually happen? Like if we see a dangerous intersection, we have plenty of them in Waco. What does it take to make it safer? And it seems like such a confusing process to just get a simple answer to that question, right? It's like the the ball kind of keeps getting volleyed to another department and another department. And then it's like, oh, we have to wait for another grant and then another consultant to come in from Dallas and tell us that it's actually dangerous. It just, and so I wonder if that's kind of part of it, part of the challenge with getting more young people involved is because it's not really clear. What is the, what is the ask? <laughs> you know, like what, what, what are, what, what's being asked of me? How do we know that we'll see success? How does change even happen? And I was just going to end up spending a lot of time sitting in like conference rooms with fluorescent lighting, like eating free snacks and listening to like presentations from department heads that are, we're supposed to believe are actually doing something about our dangerous streets, you know? 
Well, I think I learned from what you just said. And I think what you talked about was how do you make that clear? Um, And I think I'll leave this podcast with that question to pose to my group. You know, how do we do a better job of making it clear what we're here for and what we need? And, and I think there's many ways that we can do it from our side of it to bring you into it as somebody like you. And we go, you know, we, we're out in the public. We, we table and, and share, you know, what we do. We provide free bike valet at many of our community events. And while we're doing that, we're talking to the public about, you know, why we're here. Um, but reaching out and we reach out on social media and I think you're right. Um, clarifying what the process is and how you can, you know, get some better action on that. And I know you're leading into, um, more active involvement in, in bringing that to those who are in, in power. And I know that every, every community is different. And like I said, I feel like we set out on this uh, mission to be positive. And what we, what we heard from folks as we were talking to them and still do is more of this negativity of, you know, if I'm a cyclist, if I'm a road cyclist, it was more about complaining about how drivers are out to get me. Um, If I'm a wannabe bike commuter or hiker, um, I don't feel comfortable or safe going out into our community. So um, how do you do that with a positive approach? And I think that's kind of where we don't want to be constantly complaining about, I don't know how to get it done. I mean, we're about just saying we're going to get it done and then we're going to figure out a way to do it. So I think, you know, I'll take that from you, this clearness. You also brought up and I brought up too about the younger um, generations getting involved and youth getting involved. We're, We're hot on the trail of getting an education plan set up with our school district and city we're lacking that right now. And we really didn't know how to get that going. We weren't very clear on that, but we have a meeting this week with our school safety director and um, a member from our city planning um, office. And then with one of our new division um, chairpersons with, who has a program called caught with your helmet on, which is a, a way of rewarding um, youth who are wearing their helmet. It's illegal to ride your bike without a helmet if you're under 18 here in California. Um, so we have um, that program that our traffic division of um, police are are enforcing and doing something in a positive way. Before I leave that subject and move on to the next thing, I, I did want to say we do have a new challenge and it is mostly with youth because a lot of the um, positive movement we've made recently has been because of e-bikes. I mentioned my friend who depends on depends on his e-bike to ride around Temecula, which is a very hilly community. Um, and we, we've seen that people are now going out and riding with us for pleasure and getting errands done on their e-bikes. Um, my son-in-law bought a cargo bike, which he can put his two children on the back and 
you know, take them to the store or take them out on an errand or a fun event. Our new problem, and we've noticed it um, extensively this year, is that the e-bike um, industry is not doing a very good job of regulating themselves. And then government is not doing a very good job of coming in and regulating how e-bikes are built. Um, you have e-bikes that can be souped up to go well over 30 miles an hour now. Um, what we're seeing is our youth are, you know, got e-bikes probably for Christmas last year. And um, you don't even have to pedal the e-bike. You just use a throttle on it. So it's more like a motor scooter but they're riding them around town like they were bikes. And, and you know that when you give adolescents some technology like that, they're still going to behave like adolescents um, and they're not following the rules. They're driving on the wrong side of the road. They're, they really love to pop wheelies while they're riding up and down the street. Um, many of them do not wear helmets. Um, they don't know how to do hand signals. They're really not checking for traffic. So it's, a, it's really a dangerous situation and a disaster ready to happen. I want to go back to talk a little bit more about the model of um, public engagement. And by public, I mean public in the sense of working with the elected officials, city staff. So I've kind of tracked the conversation around improving bikeability in cities. And I think we talked about this a little bit in our pre-recording chat about uh, kind of the three patterns I've noticed when it comes to making meaningful change in a city. So the, there's the tactical, which is sort of your uh, undercover of night, install, painting bike lanes, installing bollards, right? Compl like breaking city rules and just, just fixing problems. Um, so that's kind of the tactical route. And then there's what I call sort of the official route, which is working within the the political infrastructure of the city and kind of doing advocating for change within the normal pathways. If that's going to city meetings, if that's being on a commissioner board, if that's like talking to city council members, if that's helping write studies or reports or comprehensive plans, right? Those those are some of the some of the ideas that come to my mind when I think of like what's the official way to improve, improve transit in a city. It, that's been my experience is it's a lot of meetings and papers and writing reports and applying for grants and et cetera. Um, and then there's sort of this collaborative model, which might be a little bit of tactical with the goal of long-term collaboration with the city, not necessarily trying to just go around breaking rules all the time, but trying to find a more collaborative path forward. One thing that stood out to me from, from just listening to you from our chat before was just how you all have, uh, it's, taken more of the official route, which for someone like me, <laughs> I'm just curious, like if you can explain kind of the value of that. I think myself personally, like I know I find myself pretty frustrated um, and impatient because I want to see my city get safer and better. And I sometimes just feel really frustrated with the official way of doing things. But I guess one way of thinking about it is like, what advice would you give someone like me who maybe struggles to see the value of of the official path to change. Okay. So from a psychology perspective, <laughs> we all have different personalities. And I think that's, you know, and, and organizations can take on the personality of their leaders. But um, I think there's a place for all of it. But, you know, I've built this thing on the premise, like I said, of positivity and 
I believe that we can take our anger and, um, and disregard for certain policies and our emotions and use them in a positive way. And I've always felt like we're, we're, you know, we are highly evolved animal and that our brains have the ability to get beyond our flight or flight or flight response to get beyond the anger and emotion that's created um, by stimulus. And we have that well-developed frontal lobe that allows us to reason and, um, come up with, um, you know, intelligent solutions to problems. And I think that um, sometimes the downside effect to, um, you know, going out and and radically laying down bike lanes um, or, you know, painting intersections, um, you know, I think can create angst on those that we're trying to convince that this is a positive thing. And now you have two sides getting more and more divided because of the anger and the emotion. Um, I think you see it now in current times that, you know, I I lived through the sixties. This was a time where it really appeared that mass demonstration. And again, it was mass. It was, it told those in power that votes were at stake if you didn't support civil rights, if you didn't do the right thing according to the masses of people. But I think what we see now is that demonstrations on both sides of an argument can create angst and division. And so what we're trying to do is hold down the fort and keep both sides at bay and be reasonable about how we approach it. So, you know, I, I built this on that premise of um, moving forward with positivity with the idea that um, by building a powerful advocacy group that those in, in power would see that this group, this bike group means votes. And we even had one of our council members who unfortunately lost her seat in the last election um, we really, really liked her, um, but she didn't do a lot with the bike community. And she started to worry about her election coming down to the wire. And she mentioned it to a colleague that, oh, my gosh, now what am I what am I going to do about those biker people? Um, you know, she she actually felt like if she could have contributed more to our group, it could have put her over the top. So, you know, I I do think that that's power today. Power today is is having people in those high positions on your side. And, yeah, sometimes we need a kick in the pants. Yeah, we need somebody to go, you know, throw out some bollards and do a fine protest that brings it to the attention of the community. Um, So, you know, and any way you any way you spin it, you know, with the, and, and I, I like your three categories that that I think no matter which one of those you use, if it's around a righteous cause um, and you can show that it is, you know, good for most of us, then I think you're going to be successful. 
Um, one thing I appreciate about what you're saying is the value of building relationships and understanding the political sphere, I guess, understanding like the role that politics plays in creating change. Um, and that might be a blind spot for more action-oriented people like me, right? <laughs> Where you might say, well, it's worth it to invest in understanding those systems and understanding how change happens um, and building relationships with people who work on that side, um, even while urging for more action. Because I do just, I just get frustrated when I see people having to cross dangerous intersections or the, the, the amount of time and money my husband and I waste commuting all over the city because there's no other option. You know, it's just if things like experiences like that and observations, they sometimes just, they're just really frustrating. <laughs> I think, I, you, know, you know, and I, I, didn't, I didn't mean to, this is the approach I take. I, I, I strongly believe in it. Um, I think there's a time and place for that. And you, you get to the point where those intersections are so dangerous and, you know, ultimately it's going to mean somebody's life. And, and that's what, you know, e- even that sometimes doesn't move people because they're not connected to that person that, that unfortunately gave their life to that strode. But I think that when we've seen success, it's generally around that conviction that we're doing something for a particular segment of our population that we're all bought into. An example of that is Holland in the 1970s decided that car crashes were killing their children and to use that as their mode of motivation to get voters to change from that post-World War II car-centric society to a model, almost a model bicycling society today. Um, It was that emotion and that, um, that campaigning and marching against these dangerous devices that we're putting people in. And to know that, you know, um, car crashes are the second highest cause of death in, for our children today. Those types of things we can build on. And if there's some way, you know, you could take one of those intersections and do something with it to bring that to the attention of your um, people in governance, there's a place for that. I've often had that thought of like one of the things I would love to do. We have a wonderful old town area, which is thriving right now, but we have a, a street that goes right through the middle of it and affects some of the, um, the aesthetics and ambiance of that neighborhood. I've often thought of doing kind of a, um, I call it a Barcelona um, school child protest where Um, In Barcelona, the youth and students of the Barcelona schools got hundreds and hundreds of bike riders together, and they basically blocked the streets while they were riding to school one morning. And it was a demonstration of, you know, we're taking over the streets. And I I constantly have that, that image of, 
getting all my bicycle friends and just blocking off that street a couple nights every week to show people what, hey, this is a great place to go. You don't need cars running up and down that street while you're sitting at a sidewalk cafe enjoying your conversation. So um, I, I do think there's a place for it. Um, but I think ultimately um, it's, it's about having real power, not just demonstrating it, but, but really having power to get things done. I know we're going a little long here, but I just really want to know um, your advice on this. One of the things that really surprised me when I started getting involved in transit conversations in my city was the limited scope of, of, of agency that cities have when it comes to making changes to their roads or making changes to transit in general. Perhaps for people who are listening who like want to be more involved with transit conversations, but um, might not understand this aspect to how transit conversations are made in our country. Is this something that you've come across? I'm just curious if you have any 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 perspective on this on this part of this part of the the conversation. Does that make sense? I think I think it does, and unfortunately, we're coming from a, a place where I think we're making some great progress on it. And I think there's all kinds of answers to that. I think number one, we've had city staff in Temecula you know, for several years now who are, are, who ride bicycles. Um, and so they, they get it. They understand what's going on. They live right here in our community. They don't have to commute on the freeway. So I think there's, you know, we do have traffic issues here. And I think there's the strong desire by the community and by our, our general plan to improve our traffic. Like I can only refer to the positive things. I mean, our our city is doing something on our freeway. They're actually building a private lane that, that connects one um, exit to a, a freeway entrance um, that people can can drive on and not actually get on the freeway to re- alleviate some of our freeway traffic and some of our north-south um, transitional traffic. Um, our city has, in the last three years, every speed limit change they've made uh, has been a lowered speed limit. Our speed limits have not been raised at all within the city in the last three years. So I I think that, um, you know, it's kind of, it has to be a taking over of the staff and the government by people who have that as a goal. And they um, think they have like thinking in that area and it, and it has to be frustrating. And we have towns around us who are in trouble. They all that they're, they're just building more sprawl. They're building more strodes and um, not contributing to the the region's transit. So um, I, I don't have advice except to get involved and get involved <laughs> in a positive way, find out, who that person is that they need to go to or who that group is they need to go to to get involved. And if there isn't that person, then do it yourself. Yeah. Well, it sounds like maybe maybe a way of reframing my question then could be to make a point of identifying everything your city can do. Because I think so much of the transit conversation orbits around what cities can't do. It's like, oh, we don't have funding for that. Oh, we don't have control of that road. Oh, we don't have the right to, we don't have the money to like install that new light signal that we need so that this intersection is safe. There's a lot of what we can't do language, but it, but just listening to the examples that you just gave about positive things your city has done, um, I think one good challenge could be to 
make it a point to figure out, okay, maybe here are all these things we can't do because of policies or the way funding gets to cities for transit, et cetera, et cetera. But let's make a list of everything we can do. <laughs> maybe maybe there's more agency and more, more power than we are even aware of in the first place. Absolutely. And I'll give a short answer to that um, in that that's, that's what we do as an advocacy group. We, we find the safe routes within our system. We avoid those roads. We avoid those intersections whenever we can. And we find calm neighborhoods that we can travel through. We've created a, um, a calm route right through the center of our town from old town all the way out to want the wineries. So, um, you know, this, this is, very important that you brought that up. It's that we do that. And then we educate not only the community about it, but we educate our leaders about, hey, look at this. You know, maybe you might consider that as a a way of connecting our um, active transportation network. Yeah. Last question, Gary, and thank you so much for staying on with me so long. Um, So I love to ask this. I ask this of every guest at the end of the show, but if we were coming through your city, uh, only had a couple hours to stop, where should we go? Do you have any favorite coffee shops or museums or natural, uh, natural like vistas that you recommend? Yeah, I, I've heard in previous podcasts, you asked that question. I was hoping I got to answer it. because. <laughs> yeah, sorry, it wasn't in your we, notes. And then I noticed it was missing. Yeah. So I added it for you at the last minute. <laughs> we have all those great life, simple pleasures here in Temec- Temecula. I mean, you ask about coffee shops and our, our bike, our bike shops do weekend rides. And oftentimes they'll end up at a coffee shop, you know, and, and some of the bike shops have the a place they go to the same place every time. Some try different ones, but we are loaded with specialty coffee shops here. And I kind of like to, I'll list my three favorites. Um, and they happen to be, you know, more culturally situated. So the first one is, um, Le Café, Le which is owned by a French couple who moved here from Provence. And it's the, the French coffee experience um, with the best croissants in the area. And we really like that one. The second one is um, a friend of mine um, owns this place. He owns several Italian restaurants here in town. But um, this one is La Bottega. And it's a traditional Italian bar. And you can go there, you know, starting at 7 a.m. and get your cafe, un cafe, or your espresso, or a cappuccino, and your um, cornetto, and have a traditional Italian breakfast. Um, And then finally, we have Cuban coffee at a a great Cuban restaurant we have here in town um, that has those great salty Cuban coffees that are really fun to have. And um, then I, I would say you can't not you can't come to Temecula without taking a ride out to the wineries and doing some wine tasting, but just just the experience of these safe routes that we found going out into wine country. You just meander through the the vineyards and look up into the mountains that surround our valley, and it's just it's just a a great great way to spend a day and um, be with friends and. Um, just enjoy that casual ride through the vineyard. So I would say that's what it's all about. But um, 
you know, if you if you did visit Temecula, there's there's a lot. It has a lot to offer, a lot of diverse entertainment and activities. And we're trying to become the 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 third leg of our of our tourist industry. We have a lot of tourism that deals with drinking and eating, and we have a lot that deals with gambling. And we're trying to be the active leg of that tourism industry. Well, thank you so much, Gary. Thanks for being um, on the podcast with me. Thanks for sharing those recommendations. Um, I want to come try all of those coffee shops personally. <laughs> yeah, thanks for sharing your story and, and, and more about the work you're doing. Everybody, that is another episode of the Bottom Up Revolution. Thanks for listening. If there's someone in your community that you think we should have on the show, please nominate them using the suggested guest form that we will link in the show notes. We will also link the businesses and recommendations that Gary had for us in this episode. And we will be back in two weeks with another conversation. Mm-hmm.